Hey friends, welcome to the Reconstructing Prayer podcast, a one-season, short-run podcast series where I sit down with Christian intellectuals and I interview them on the intersection between theological deconstruction and spiritual formation. I'm Andrew Ray Williams, the author of a newly released book entitled Reconstructing Prayer Beyond Deconstructing Your Faith, published by Cascade Books. I'm really excited about today's conversation, so let's go ahead and get right into it. Today I have the privilege of talking with my friend and colleague, Zachary Wagner. Zach is an ordained minister and the editorial director for the Center for Pastor Theologians. And he's currently pursuing a PhD in New Testament at the University of Oxford. He lives in Oxford, England with his wife and three children. And Zach is not only a great mind, but a great guy. And he recently just released a book around around the same time that I released my book. And his book uh, is with IVP, and it's entitled Non-Toxic Masculinity, Recovering Healthy Male Sexuality. And I'm really looking forward to sharing this podcast episode with you because Zach really does do a great job digging into a difficult subject, and I'm sure it's going to spur on conversation and thought for every single one of you who are listening. So let's go ahead and just get right into our interview. Well, Zach, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, man. So we heard a little bit about you and uh, what you've been up to recently, but um, can you tell us a little bit more just about you, some things that uh, we wouldn't know about you just by reading the back of your book? Um, yeah, good question. I grew up in the Chicagoland area. I am the fourth of six kids. Um, was homeschooled through my eighth grade year and then went to a public high school. Um, got my undergraduate degree from Moody Bible Institute. Uh, went on to do some master's work at Wheaton College after that. And um, as I as imagine you already would have mentioned, I'm working on a DPhil, the University of Oxford in New Testament. Um, yeah, things you might not know about me from the bio. I am a baseball fan in exile uh, here in the United <laughs> Kingdom. Uh, so, yeah, baseball was probably my favorite sport growing up. And so are, um, you a, are, you, are you a Sox a, fan or a Cubs fan? No, a long suffering Cubs fan until yeah. until 2016, which was a very magical experience. And that was a lot of fun for um, Shelby and me. We were married and didn't yet have kids. Um, so and we we're living in the Chicagoland area. So I think their 2016 campaign, it's easily the most um baseball games I've ever been to in one year. I think Shelby and I yeah. went to like nine nine games that year or something like that at Wrigley, um, including um, at least one playoff game. I think we went to the division series. Yes, the division series clincher, which was a ton of fun against the Cardinals. Um, so yeah, speaking of the Cardinals, the Cubs are playing the Cardinals for a series in London. Uh, actually, oh, wow. just in a few weeks coming up here, they're doing these kind of international series every now and then where they go to Japan or or, sure. or London or something like that, or Mexico City. Uh, so we're strategizing on whether it's uh, feasible with our three small kids and financially viable and wise for us to make it out for that. So that's one thing. Uh, another just kind of fun thing to start is uh, I 
say I'm like obsessively, but I grew up as a gamer um, a little bit and was a big, probably my two big series that I was formed on were the Legend of Zelda and then the Halo series uh, on Xbox. Um, and uh, people who are in the know may know that uh, a sequel to the Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild uh, entitled Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom just came out. So uh, that's a big deal for people who care about that sort of thing. And uh, Shelby and I actually are both into that. And we're in the midst of our crazy busy lives and life stage. We're trying to scrounge together 30, 45 minutes to to play Zelda in the evenings, which is a lot of fun. So and that's not very much sure. for a game. It's just not. It sure minutes. isn't. No, as, no. And, not for the, and not for a Zelda game, which... I yes. think on average, my understanding is people take, you know, 60, 70 hours just to beat the kind of main storyline. So split that into 30 minute chunks and you'll be <laughs> we'll be working on it for a minute. That's right, man. Well, hey, it's good yeah. to good to know for our listeners more about you. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation with you because I really enjoyed your book. And I think there's some intersections mm. with my own and would love to kind of explore those. Um, so let's go ahead and get into it. The, the first thing. Yeah. That um, first thing that I really notice is you're kind of responding to this this overall cultural conversation within the church and, with, mm. and even outside the church um, about deconstructing beliefs, Christian beliefs, mm-hmm. and um, on you talk kind of openly and honestly, which is is refreshing about your own journey of deconstructing Christian purity culture. Mm-hmm. And on page 19, uh, you say that purity culture is the theological assumptions, discipleship materials, events, and rhetorical strategies used to promote traditional Christian sexual ethics in response to the sexual revolution. And toward the end of the book, you kind of talk about um, how your deconstruction of purity culture has actually freed you to become more mm-hmm. holistically formed disciple of Jesus. Can you can you tell our listeners a little bit about your own journey uh, through that. Yeah, I, I mean, where to begin? I think personally for me, the quote unquote reconstruction journey, as it is, I think for most people, as I understand it, is an intersection of the kind of personal narrative and your own individual or within your, your kind of smaller community spiritual walk and relationship with the Lord on the one hand, and then the kind of broader cultural movements. And this was even um, framed up in the way you were asking the question. And that was certainly the case for me um, as it relates to sexuality, purity culture, um, you know, gender, marriage, all of these kind of closely related ideas where I, uh, both before and then during my marriage, and I'm very open about this in the book, and um, Shelby, uh, my wife, is also very open about it and and happy for me to be talking about this in a, in a public way. Um, there were kind of struggles around <clears throat> uh, sexuality, sexual intimacy for us in marriage that I felt um, both practically and spiritually under-resourced and under and unprepared for dealing with the complexity of the things that we were facing. And um, that coupled with the kind of dysfunction I was seeing broadly 
um, particularly with, you know, sexual abuse scandal and hypocrisy and different things uh, from Christian leaders that were coming out uh, more and more consistently, uh, it seemed. Um, juxtaposed with my own struggles and our own struggles um, as it relates to these things. So something felt amiss um, for me personally and for the communities that I was a part of. So that, I think, led to this process where I wanted to dig into that a little bit. And um, I think many people who write books will tell you you don't often i think from the reader side it can feel like okay this person's writing this book because they're an expert on this topic and they're going to tell me what to think and i think it is often the case for authors from the author side where you're actually like i don't feel like an expert on this but the process of writing the book i hope to be able to work out what i think about it and process it you know my phd supervisor says sometimes um you don't you don't write to say what you think you write to find out what you think. And I exactly, think there's a lot of, exactly. there's a lot of truth to that. And that was certainly the case for me with this book where I had some kind of hunches and inklings, but honestly, just a lot of questions about how to relate scripture theology um, with the kind of personal and, and cultural crises that I was experiencing and observing. Um, and I think that is a lot of what broadly construed de deconstruction is. It's this um, process that people come to that's precipitated by a certain crisis. Call it, you know, cognitive dissonance between what you believe about the world and the world as you're observing it, or um, tension between what you were told about God or the church and what your experience of it is or, or any number of things like that. And um, there, the process of deconstruction, I think framed positively is a, a growth process to try to work through some of those questions. So I imagine when I say, you know, I came to these questions about masculinity, sexuality, gender, marriage, things like that. Um, I came to this process with just a lot of questions. I think that's honestly where just a lot of people are at. There was in, um, you know, and I don't know to what extent you would identify with having kind of grown up within the purity movement as I describe it in the book. But one of the massive appeals of it, I think both for parents and pastors and leaders, as well as for young people was the kind of straightforward clarity and simplicity and almost formulaic way in which it presented uh, issues having to do with sexuality. And um, I think that, among other things, has proved just not to be the case. Uh, you know, sexuality is is massively complex um, and astoundingly so and almost defies kind of tight definitions and um easy answers and so often in people's experience um so yeah kind of long answer but i hope that gets at some of the some of the things you're no that's that's really that. helpful zach and you know i i think that you the thing you really do well is is kind of explaining some of the the nature of purity culture because it's not as if purity culture 
you know, it wasn't like there was a book handed everybody at Purity Culture 101. It was no. it was taught, but it was very much caught as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of people um, you know, our age and even below and above us um, were kind of steeped within this. And I know I was as well. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times you hear women uh, talk a lot about purity culture and how that shaped and formed them. But you don't talk here a lot about men. And I love that you are kind of talking about masculinity within this, this cultural Christianity phenomenon, because it's very Mm -hmm. much not often talked about from a man's perspective. So Mm -hmm. can you give us a little bit about um, what's unique, what's unique about the male experience within purity culture? Yeah, I think it's it's right to say that you do hear a lot more talk about the way purity culture, quote unquote, negatively affected women. And I think rightly so, because it, um, I think, disproportionately negatively affects women. And it's women's bodies that are more excessively policed and regulated. And I think more of the burden of responsibility for the quote-unquote purity of the community and um falls on women and you can just kind of anecdotally say that just in the way that women's clothes are kind of a, a sticking point within purity culture and part of that part of that is framed up as a responsibility that women have to dress in such a way that does not elicit you know lustful thoughts from the men around them um when I think just take one step back from that, you can you can examine and critique that. It was like, well, of course, men are responsible for the way they view women, no matter how they're dressed. And I think that's a principle that most people, if you press them on, would say, well, yeah, but, you know, you know, people will hem and haw about it. So you're not in this gets to your first point. You're not going to get in the books like women are responsible to keep men pure. You're actually going to get a lot of consistent concessions that like men are ultimately responsible, but this is a kindness that women can blah, 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 blah. And I think in the way these books are talked about and the way it was worked out in youth groups and in conversations and with parents and all the rest of it, that that is where the kind of onus really fell hard on women hardest on women, I I should say, to kind of maintain uh, purity. So, uh, but to get to your question, um, what's the kind of unique spin for men? I'm framing this up in terms for for women because I want to make a reverse image of it. So for women, I think they often coming out of purity culture, I've heard this many times and read it many times over, that women experience the shame of the kind of fear of their bodies in the sense of if my body isn't covered up the right way, or if I'm in the wrong context or viewed the wrong way, I will cause this man to stumble into sin. And then that will be my fault because I wasn't doing the right thing to protect him from that. So that creates, I think, a lot of anxiety for women and shame about their bodies. But there is a flip side to that because men are receiving the message message that they are kind of helplessly and hopelessly just erotic in the way that they view the world. So then if women are shamed for causing others to experience sexual desire, I 
feel like men often experience shame for their own experience of sexual desire. It was at the same time, just kind of like an inevitable part of being male that you would have these um, supposedly out of control, erotic thoughts. Um, but also this kind of like terrible, destructive thing about you that you needed to keep under wraps at all costs. And that I think creates an ambivalence that was kind of crazy making for a lot of men. Um, something I say in the book is that if purity culture had a tendency to dehumanize women by over-sexualizing their bodies, I believe it would dehumanize men by over-sexualizing their minds. Or um, I'll also say that if women are sexual objects uh, too often in purity culture, men are almost like sexual animals. Like we're, we're something less than human. We're just instinct machines that need to kind of indulge in the sexual urge um, kind of in a subhuman way. Um, and I'm not suggesting that purity culture was wrong in taking that as a serious problem of discipleship that we needed to help young people navigate. Um, but the stakes were so, so high um, that I think for, you know, a certain percentage of men who grew up in that culture, um, it set them up for um, ongoing struggle. I think ironically, it became this almost self-fulfilling prophecy where if it's quote unquote, every man's battle to be constantly waging this war against lust, um, there can be a failure of imagination even uh, about what Christian maturity might look like. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful, Zach. You know, I, I think that one thing I appreciated about your book that uh, probably a good amount of people won't appreciate on various sides of <laughs> divide is the fact that you're kind of, you're still saying that, Hey, the, the Christian sexual ethic um is good. It honors mm -hmm. men, women, children. It honors the witness of scripture, the best of the the Christian tradition, while at the mm -hmm. same time calling out how um, cultural Christianity kind of filled all of that up with sort of all these extra biblical ways of, of yes. living that out. Yeah. And so I think your your book can easily upset <laughs> sort of two different types of people on on the extreme uh, i think it's going to be really refreshing for a lot of other people as mm. well and something that oftentimes um is not talked about you know I, I with that distinction um can you talk a little bit more about that because i think that again you have sort of christians that do hold like hey you know like i think you even say this in the book at some point that that like for, for you and your children, you want to raise them in terms of <laughs> taking their sexual ethic, their, their, their sexuality um, as, as an offering to God, while at the same mm. time, um, again, not trying to somehow bring all these kind of cultural Christian factors that can sure. end up being damaging. So can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, because I think it almost gets down to how you define purity culture. And there is some disagreement on this point. Um, I think there are many critics of purity culture that will equate it quite simply with the historic Christian teaching that sex and marriage go together. And uh, that they should not, you know, sexual intimacy is not something that should be explored in relationships outside of that, that marriage covenant. 
Um, there are many critics of purity culture, um, and I don't mean to kind of dis dis disparage this viewpoint, even though I disagree with it, who will just say that in and of itself is an oppressive kind of purity culture, toxic um, teaching. Um, so I talk about that a little bit in the book and try to broaden this kind of pre-marital or extramarital abstinence norm as like, this isn't something that just showed up over the last 30 years in evangelical kind of conservative white America. This is just actually been a moral norm for almost all of human history in most cultures. Yeah. Um, whether it was like lived out consistently, of course not, but it was, I think yeah. the moral norm, yeah. uh, and is, and I, I not, I think it, it was, it just is the case that, that, so it won't do to kind of define in my view, purity culture in terms of that, that norm, uh, nor is it to say that Christianity has had this kind of oppressive sexual ethic until 10 minutes ago. And now we need to revise that. I'm, I'm not one, I'm not a person who takes that view, but <clears throat> I think it is the case that, um, Christians throughout the church's history, but, you know, in my book, I have in view this kind of subcultural movement of the past couple decades have gotten sideways in the way they have, um, thought about and talked about and, uh, commended a certain sexual ethic. Um, so yeah, I'm thinking of kind of how to get to the substance of your question. It is to say that there is a, you know, you read my definition and what I do with purity culture is I define it in terms of a kind of recent last few decades phenomenon in response to the sexual revolution. Um, that was used to then commend cr traditional Christian sexual ethics, but it is not the same thing as those traditional Christian sexual ethics. That being said, another thing I'm trying to accomplish with the book is create avenues for dialogue that don't need to be so narrowly focused and obsessed with like, well, what do you believe about premarital sex? What do you believe about masturbation? What do you believe about homosexual you know, practice or something like that, or gay marriage or trans this or that, or the other thing. There's actually plenty of those things that, um, I don't go into in a ton of detail in the book. And I have, um, certain thoughts on some of them that I have stronger convictions about and certain thoughts that I still feel like I'm in process on and other things that I can, you know, just happily agree to disagree about. Um, but something like, what would it look like for the church to move into a more robustly humanizing mode in the way we commend sexual ethics, live out sexual ethics, even talk about sexual ethics? Um, and yes, disagree about sexual ethics sometimes is more kind of top of mind in my goal for the book. You know, there could have been a book that I would have written that would have been a defense of everything that I believe about sexual ethics kind of on a point by point bullet. I, I I had no interest in writing that book. And those books, frankly, are a dime a dozen. Um, and um, I wanted to do something a bit more structural that could, I hope, serve as a conversation starter and conversation piece um, for communities to work through some of these things. And I think, you know, I hope just about everybody sees, you know, sexual violence and the dehumanization of women as a serious problem in the church that needs to be addressed. 
And, you know, if I were to characterize my own kind of sexual ethics, it would be the kind of right leaning traditionalist, you know, I, I don't mean to weaponize the term orthodox, but what I view is orthodox kind of Christian sexual ethics. Um, that being said, I think people who read the book will see that on balance, I am much, much more critical of the kind of right-leaning wing of the church on sexual ethics than I would be of of the more progressive, uh, those who view things through a more progressive lens. So yeah. I don't know whether whether there's going to be anybody left who cares to read the thing or finds it helpful um, after that. But I am trying to I am trying to do something different and model something different with the conversation. And I hope that hope that proves helpful for some folks. I think you are, Zach. Um, and I do want to exhort the fact that, you know, it can be easy kind of just to especially today. It's really easy to pigeonhole people um, mm. and it's really easy to kind of just pigeonhole positions. But. I think the way I read it, at least, was that, again, you find yourself, um, you know, within, like what you said, within what might be called the traditionalist, right-leaning, more orthodox view of uh, Christian sexuality. However, that doesn't mean you don't, that you hold back any punches of critiquing um, mm -hmm. exactly the excesses and sort of the abuse that can kind of come out of sort of that wing. And to me, I read it as an act of love. Um, as as also a dialogue to helping uh, you know, or even a witness of helping other people who don't belong to that tribe to be able to sort of hear the best case um, or sort of the, the ways in which those things have gone awry. Mm -hmm. And so I think you do that well. Um, you know, one thing I would like to talk about is the, constru the constructive part of your book where you root um, humanity broadly, but also uh, particularly masculinity within Jesus of Nazareth. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's funny is, and you've probably seen this, but um, within our circles, um, many times men re men's retreats or men's messages, the kind yeah. of the prototypical men, you know, is like you hold up Samson because he's just mm -hmm. he's strong. Um, or David, at least when he's fighting. Or David mm -hmm. when he's lusting after Bathsheba. Not when he's writing poetry. Mm -hmm. It's odd that... <laughs> That or collecting Philistine foreskins or something like that. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Um, but you don't hold up Jesus. And I, I'm not saying that. Or that, no. if I can interject, or if you do, you hold up Jesus kind of taking names at the temple and flipping tables. tables. Yes, or, yes. or the Jesus of the late chapters of Revelation with a sword coming out of his mouth or something like that. Yes. So sorry to interject there because I hear Jesus, uh, Jesus kind of held up plenty, but it is this kind of like badass Jesus, like the, yes. the, the macho Jesus um, to the exclusion of other, other things. But which by the way, if I can say the sword out of his mouth is uh, the Let's words. See if I agree with what you're going to say. Yes. God. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. It, it's so anyways, the and, the, and, the, and, the, and the robe and the robe dipped in blood is his own blood. His own blood, not, blood not the blood of, it of is his not victims. the blood of his enemies. No, <laughs> that's right. Yes. Thank yes, you. Which, glad, yes. glad, glad we can, uh, <laughs> can right. kind of fist bump on that one. <laughs> that's right. But anyways, yes, go ahead, Zach. Tell us about that. Um, yeah, it is. What I'm trying to do is situate our kind of vision of masculinity. Yes. That, focuses on Jesus, but not Jesus as kind of a, a superficial mo model of masculinity in the sense of like, 
he was a carpenter and, you know, would have been working hard out in the sun all day. And, uh, you know, he flipped over tables once. So he got angry just like me. I don't know. Like, I, I it's honestly just like a really sketchy. Um, um, so I think it really is a... Like, there's not a lot of data there to make Jesus into this kind of shotgun pickup truck uh, macho guy, uh, a la certain segments of American culture. I'm not saying he's the exact opposite of that. It's just, like, you're making a lot out of not that much um, there. And I think that's actually kind of a superficial, stereotypy approach where we kind of look for ways that Jesus can kind of inspire us to a script of masculinity that we're already pretty excited about or culturally accustomed to. I'm trying to do something a little different, which is situate one, the fact that G like the incarnation represents an affirmation of the goodness of human embodiment broadly, but I think uniquely for men in a certain way that is not meant to imply that like men are closer to God or male embodiment is better than female embodiment. Um, and Amy Peeler's done some good work on this, but for men in particular, there's something really like beautiful and mysterious and wondrous about the fact that God, the son became embodied like we are. And that at least should be taken as a radical affirmation of the goodness of male embodiment, including sexual, like sexed embodiment and the experience of sexuality in and through a male a male body and i think that can be a really healing message for men who um grew up in this culture that again intentionally or not often taught them to live in fear of their male embodiment and to view male sexuality as this only kind of rabid destructive thing that you need needed to keep penned up and then just kind of like unleash it in marriage and that's the only context in which it can ever do any good um, but Jesus was never married and um, nevertheless lived out um, his life in a uh, embodied male human existence. So I start with some of those kind of incarnational theological themes there. But I also go on to like the way that Jesus modeled uh, relationships with women and the way he interacted with women that I think um, often... Um, stands in contrast to the culture of kind of fear and mistrust um, that will sometimes prevail between the sexes in, in Christian spaces. Um, that's number one. Uh, well, number two, perhaps. And then lastly, this, like, the death of Jesus, I think, is brought into kind of connection with our sexuality in the sense that Jesus's death can atone for our sexual sins. But not very often is the resurrection ever thought of in terms of this. And what I say in the book is that the resurrection of Jesus actually inaugurates a new way to be human. And if there's a new way to be human, there's a new way to be male. So whatever kind of cultural stereotypes or values that we may associate with maleness, um, positive or negative, um, if they tend towards sin, destruction, dehumanization, 
that's been put to death with the cross and our humanity put to death on the cross rather and our humanity in and through christ if we are in christ is renewed and we as men can learn a new uh more human way to be men and of course that's the point is that jesus is not less human than us um certainly not less human because he never married or never had sex or never had children he is actually more human than us um because he actually lived out the telos for which we were created as human beings um and never kind of yielded or uh compromised himself or sinned against others in dehumanizing ways. And and that is what sin does. It dehumanizes us. It makes us less human. When we uh when we treat others as less than human, we are ourselves in a small way becoming less human. Um becoming less than we were made and intended to be. And Jesus models that not just um equally, but I would I would say more fully and truly human uh way of of being in the world. So that chapter on Jesus is called the true man, which is not to say Jesus was a kind of strong culturally stereotypical badass. It, it is that he is he is more truly human um than any of us and uh we are meant to uh live not only in imitation of him but in union with him through his uh death and resurrection. Yeah, that's exactly right, Zach. And you know, I I want I I love that turn you make because that's exactly I mean theologically where we need to be. Mm. But two, you know, even it undermines a lot of what you're talking about in terms of the um, behavior modification. Yeah. That that um, and you know even the the word imitation. You know, we're not talking about the WWJD just kind of like really try hard, but they're sure. actually like that the participatory kind of what you talk yes. about the union of Jesus that it's actually becoming one with Jesus so we be, can can become one with ourselves and mm-hmm. become truly human ourselves mm. and i think is um is really helpful because not only do you kind of deconstruct the the vision of of purity culture of what it means to be a man or even truly human in general, but you kind of help reconstruct this vision of human flourishing um, mm-hmm. in the life of Jesus and our own lives as we become more in union with Jesus. Mm. You know, one thing that I would love to kind of help land the plane on um, is how you see, again, more of a constructive question of like, where do you see um this all coming together in terms of how to really lift up um, the beauty and the goodness of embodiment and mm. how God we believe has created us to, to live sexually and flourish most while at the mm. same time um, not falling into the trappings of purity culture or even creating sort of purity culture 2.0 in another way. Sure. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is a tension to some extent that exists within scripture and the Christian tradition, this tension between created goodness on the one hand, and the fact that we as falling creatures often express that created goodness, created goodness um, in broken and destructive ways. 
And I, you know, this gets back to what we were saying earlier in the conversation, am not convinced of a mode of living out the Christian faith where the Christian faith merely becomes a tool for sexual liberation. Um, I don't think we can get away from the fact that the Jewish tradition that is kind of really wholesale without hardly any revision on sexual ethics taken up into uh, early Christianity is, you know, a, you could frame it up as restrictive, but I think you can frame it positively as an attempt to qualify our nature towards virtuous ends, which is to say we are by nature sexual creatures and the law of God, quote unquote, or the Torah, or, you know, our vision of what the telos of human beings is, is meant to take that nature and direct it towards virtue and towards the good. Um, so purity culture, I think on the most generous charitable read was genuinely an attempt to do that. But as is often the case, we can, even in our attempts to, um, direct our nature in a certain direction, be captured and captivated by what are actually worldly ways of thinking about sexuality and thinking about, um, you know, the telos of our, of our sexuality as kind of fulfillment and self-actualization and self-expression and, um, you know, maximizing my experience of bodily pleasure. And uh, honestly, the Christian tradition knows very little of any of these things. Yeah. Um, and majors instead, as it relates to sexuality, yes, on a celebration of the beauty and goodness of being sexual creatures, it is, it is astounding to me that even given some of the things that Jesus says in the gospel about celibacy and eunuchs and what Paul says in Romans seven about singleness, there is not in scripture, a kind of full on rejection of kind of bodily sexual experience and bodily pleasure or marriage or anything like that, which was something that you did find in certain philosophical traditions in the ancient world. Um, you did find a, a kind of rejection of the body and its bodily pleasures wholesale. Um, but Christianity actually mediates that a little bit and um, it, it talks about the need to qualify and um, in some sense restrain our natural urges uh, while continuing to affirm the goodness of human embodiment, which again, I, this is what the resurrection is. What is the resurrection? If not a radical affirmation of the goodness of, of embodiment and, and creatureliness. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm circling around a little bit, but I did want to land on, I think what I already hinted at a little bit, which yeah. is that, um, I think the word on sexuality that the Christian tradition has to offer in this age is not one of sexual fulfillment. 
it is one of at least a willingness to give up yourself and to be willing to deny yourself uh, in love for and service to the other. Um, and one of the central ways in which purity culture went awry is by making kind of abstinence and the living out of Christian sexual ethics a path to future sexual fulfillment. Yes. You know, hold off on sex now and your sex life in marriage later will be better. And this is a key part of my story is that that didn't pan out for me, you know, um, and people who are interested in hearing about that story can can read the book, I suppose. Um, yeah. But that was, I mean, just in my deconstruction process, um, it was uh, it was a process of discipleship, of giving up on um, what I was grasping for in terms of my own um, hopes for what living as a sexual being might be. But there is a lot of pain in that, but there's also um, joy on the other side. So, yeah, that's again, good. I feel like every question, every answer I've given you has been a bit meandering, but I hope. I hope no, no, this is that. good. And I think it's getting at some different things. And, um, you know, uh, one, one thing that I think is that's come up for me as you've been talking is um, how purity culture sort of took up this whole idea of love, human love, that is, and sex is is really what fulfills our life mm -hmm. and just took up that promise which is not at all what christians believe actually mm -hmm. um and but and then just kind of just said well but just instead of throwing off all restraints just restrain until the right time yeah then that promise will be fulfilled when in fact yeah no that's good that's that's not at all ex how scripture or even you know the no. the Christian traditions actually talk about sex, yes. love, and everything. Mm. And I like your your word at the at the end there because I think ultimately the whole idea of restraint in scripture is what leads to true freedom, right? Like Galatians mm -hmm. five one, we've been free, so we've been yeah, absolutely that we can actually experience freedom. Um, and so I think that that's that's a really good kind of way to end this is to end on this whole idea of um of really rewiring the way we think as a church kind of going back to mm. actually how the church has thought rather than kind of just christianizing the ideas we're finding out in culture right yes and yeah. um you know i want to respect your time zach but before we end i'd love to just kind of give you a chance to just say you know if you'd offer a final uh, word to um, people who are listening, um, obviously my final word would just go buy Zach's book. But what's your final word as <laughs> you uh, as you kind of want to leave this conversation? Um. Yeah. I mean, just thinking about the concept of deconstruction, I suppose, uh, is that. I think delving into the Christian tradition, the best, there's a, there's, there's definitely some, you know, perhaps a lot of bad and unhelpful things in the Christian tradition, um, which I don't mean to imply in scripture, 
although there are challenging things in scripture to be sure, uh, on human sexuality, um, there's a deep well of rich resources and beauty there. And in as much as um, kind of in the cultural moment, Christian sexual ethics have been framed as um, just kind of one-dimensionally oppressive um you know and you know maybe here i'm opening myself up to that purity culture 2.0 accusation um but i just want to say that there's there's something really beautiful about the goodness of human embodiment as um and the goodness of by extension then masculinity and being a man um, as expressed in the theological riches of the Christian tradition. And I would just commend that to people. Um, I, I don't know what that journey looks like for you and it doesn't need to look the same way it has looked for me, but, um, I, you know, I'll say what I say at the end of the book is that the gods, the kind of cultural gods of sexual fulfillment really are false gods. And, um, that true life um, will not be found in in the worship of these false gods. Um, call that oppressive if you want, but I think uh, it is uh, a path to joy and freedom, as you were saying. So, off the cuff, Holy Spirit, those are the things that are coming to mind at the end here. That's good. I totally agree, and I really appreciate your perspective, Zach. Well, thanks so much for taking your time, man. I know you remain busy, um, but yeah. thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Andrew. Thanks so much for listening to this episode where I talk with my friend, author Zachary Wagner, about his new book, Non-Toxic Masculinity, Recovering Healthy Male Sexuality, published very recently with IVP. Make sure and buy his book. Check it out on Amazon. Get it wherever books are sold. If you are interested in going deeper, I have a whole book on how to begin to deconstruct faith and move beyond deconstruction to a more full, holistic spirituality. It just came out with Cascade Books. You can get it on Amazon or pretty much anywhere books are sold. Really look forward to some more podcasts to be dropped in the coming weeks. They're going to be dropped every single week, so make sure and subscribe to the podcast. And really looking forward to sharing more conversations with future guests Thanks so much, everybody, and we will catch you next episode.